The availability of the deposit insurance fund resources and the reliance on transfer strategies are two key elements to manage crises in, in the US. In the EU, harmonizing bank insolvency regimes is not feasible at this juncture and therefore the only way to achieve some sort of harmonization would be to expand the scope of application of the resolution regime, which is already harmonized. Welcome to this podcast of IADI, the International Association of Deposit Insurers. My name is Bert van Rosebeke. I'm the head of research of IADI. And today we are joined by Marco Bodellini. Marco is a law professor and a member of the IADI advisory panel. This panel is composed of top experts in the field of deposit insurance and bank resolution and provides outside advice and independent reviews of IADI research papers and proposed guidance. So, hi, Marco. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, Bert. Thank you very much. The pleasure is all mine to be with you and uh, Ayadi today. So, Marco, today uh, we want to talk about your new book. So you just uh, published this book uh, and uh, it's titled International Bank Crisis Management, a Transatlantic Perspective. And it's uh, published under the hard studies of commercial and financial law. And uh, well, in, in that new book, um, you cover uh, the bank crisis management frameworks of the United States, the United Kingdom and the European Union. And of course, you also deal with the role of the deposit insurers in that framework. Uh, so, I mean, even though your work does not cover the Swiss uh, legal framework, um, given all the recent bank failures in Switzerland and the United Kingdom and, and of course in the United States, this book probably could not have come at a better moment in time. Right, so uh, I guess you couldn't foresee all this timing, but maybe you can share a bit the reasons with us. Why? Why did you start working on this project uh, in, the, in the first place? Um, yeah, yeah, yes, Bert. I think you are perfectly right. I could not uh, um, foresee uh, three major uh, failures in the U.S. and uh, the collapse of Credit Suisse in. Uh, in, in Switzerland, but uh, I have to say that I've always thought that uh, um, bank crisis management in, uh, in broad terms is a, a key part of banking and uh, uh, of banking regulation. And uh, since crises will keep on uh, occurring, uh, I think that crisis management will keep on uh, being uh, um, crucial. Uh, and this consideration was actually, if you like, the starting point for uh, deciding to embark in, uh, in, in this project. Um, over the last seven to eight years, I have extensively worked on bank crisis management from the academic, the consultancy and the policy perspective. Um, I have published a number of papers, I have advised the, um, the European Parliament, Unidruad, the IMF and the World Bank on these matters and I have also served as a member of the IAD advisory panel, as you said. And I think that all this work was very important because it has somehow placed me in a good position to see, to see things from, from different angles and also to analyze the peculiarities of different legal uh, regimes and different legal uh, frameworks. So building on uh, all these, this book tries 
tries to um, to put the experiences that I've acquired over time together and to discuss some key issues which are still to a large extent uh, unsolved. Okay, so so before continuing, it, it may be helpful to stress that um, in the book you define what we call here bank crisis management in a, in a very um, a very broad, a very un- encompassing way. So so you use that term to include both systemic but also non-systemic banks, and it also covers um, insolvency proceedings or, or liquidation, but but also resolution. So maybe maybe you can explain it a little bit more before we go into the discussion. Um, why, why you did that and, and what that means. Yeah, so there are two main reasons why I took that, that approach. First of all, from a methodological perspective, I wanted to identify a key working definition which could uh, uh, drive the readers uh, um, along uh, the analysis. The second point um, um, is built on uh, a real-life consideration, which is that uh, two of the three legal frameworks that uh, I discuss in the book, namely the European Union and uh, uh, the United Kingdom, um, still have uh, in place a dual-track regime, which is based on the distinction between uh, resolution being the procedure for uh, public interest institutions, so to speak, and uh, and insolvency. So the structure of my book, to a certain extent, reflects the structure of these two um, to frameworks, which is also in some way criticized due to its potential to, to lead to conflicting decisions. And in that respect, I think it's interesting that the recent uh, proposal of the European Commission at European level aims at, uh, if you like, tackling the risk of having conflicting decisions paving the way for a de facto single-track regime, which is more similar to the US regime, where most banks would be resolved in the event of being uh, failing or likely to fail, as opposed to being submitted to insolvency proceedings under national law, which is currently um, the case. Of course, if this uh, proposal from the Commission were to be implemented uh, in the way it currently stands, then the conceptual foundation at the basis of the BRD, whereby uh, public interest resolution is meant uh, uh, to be applied only for a few large and complex banks would be uh, completely changed. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll we'll come back to that issue in in a second, right? Um, But um, maybe taking one step back. Um, so, So, of course, in each of the jurisdictions that you investigated, in all three of them, um, bank crisis management regimes are, are very complex, obviously, right? And they involve a number of actors uh, and the interplay between those actors also with the deposit insurer um, de- depends on their respective powers of those actors and, and their responsibilities. But, but looking at those three jurisdictions, if, if, you would, if you would try to summarize, would you say that there is something that all these jurisdictions have like in common? Or is there like something typical um, for for the design of a, of a bank crisis management regime? I think that, you know, in this respect, the recent uh, cases are pretty interesting to, to take into consideration. 
um, because we could argue that, uh, you know, what most jurisdictions have uh, in common is that uh, by implementing the Financial Stability Board key attributes, they are based on the assumption that, uh, you know, losses should be internalized through bail-in and bail-in-like uh, tools. And that, of course, is the case for the US, the UK and uh, the European Union. But on the other side, uh, what, uh, you know, these recent cases have um, clearly shown is that uh, authorities will often do everything they can to deviate from the application of uh, uh, bailing. Now, of course, this could be somehow understood on the assumption that there might be uh, risks uh, arising from the application of bail-in in terms of uh, triggering uh, instability. But even deviating from this model can come with negative consequences, such as moral hazard uh, uh, and discipline on, on the market and potentially negative impacts on fab- public finances should the government decide to use tax pay- taxpayers' money to, you know, to, um, to rescue failing uh, institutions. And this also raises more philosophical questions as to whether it would make sense to have uh, a bail-in driven system and then uh, every time that a crisis uh, takes place, uh, you have the authorities looking for grounds to rely on exceptions or even uh, worse, uh, um, you know, passing emergency legislation allowing for the disapplication of bail-in. That, uh, that, uh, that probably should be, should, be, should be reconsidered at this point. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marco. Uh, okay, so if, if we now look in particular maybe at, at the role of deposit insurance uh, in bank resolution frameworks, and, and maybe we can focus on, on the United States and, and the European Union, what would you say are, are the main differences between these both um, um, bank failure management regimes regarding the role um, of the deposit insurance? Is, is there anything that is of particular interest in, in any of these two jurisdictions that maybe is an example for the other one? Is there working methods that have proven to be very successful in the past that could be an example for the other ones? Um, and yeah, maybe some of, some of our listeners may be aware that in the United States and in a growing number of other jurisdictions as well, um, deposit insurance play, play a more active role um, in bank um, crisis management, so a, a role that goes beyond what we call a payout, so reimbursing um, depositors when, when the bank fails. Yeah. So, so of course, you know that in the US you have the FDIC, which has this uh, dual uh, capacity as deposit insurance agency on one side and as the resolution authority um, on the other side. And that makes uh, the FDIC the key uh, player, if you like, uh, which is in charge to handle uh, bank crises in, uh, in the US. What is interesting in, the, in that respect is that uh, most commentators have uh, argued that it is precisely because of this dual role um, that the US system has become, you know, a sort of uh, um, uh, uh, leading example at the international level for um, bank crisis management. Um, so the recent failures of Signature, Silicon Valley Bank and um, uh, First Republic uh, um, have shown uh, one more time that the availability of the deposit insurance fund resources and uh, the reliance on transfer strategies are two key elements uh, to manage uh, uh, crises in, in the US. 
Uh, if we look at the European Union, this is not always the case. Um, there are several member states in the EU where deposit guarantee schemes cannot and uh, do not go beyond uh, depositor uh, payout. Now, in respective of payout being uh, actually the existential function of deposit guarantee schemes, which uh, needs to be part of the framework, uh, limiting the role of deposit guarantee schemes to, um, to only uh, payout might be counterproductive in several situations. Um, the recent proposal of the European Commission seems to have as its point of reference the FDIC-driven type of uh, intervention. But without necessarily going uh, to the US system where the institutional setup is very different for the reasons I just uh, pointed and currently impossible to replicate in the EU due to you know, different uh, uh, political um, uh, views, even the Italian framework in the EU and the way of intervening by authorities there might be an interesting point of reference to take into consideration. So in Italy you have the bank supervisor and the resolution authority which is the Bank of Italy, uh, and the deposit guarantee schemes, which over time have developed uh, you know, interesting and effective forms of um, uh, cooperation, which um, um, have aimed at uh, implementing transfer strategies on the assumption that uh, this could be, in uh, several cases, more effective from a system-wide perspective than uh, a depositor payout-driven um, strategy. Now, the main obstacle uh, which is currently in place uh, relates to the interplay between uh, um, the super preference uh, which is given to cover depositors and to deposit guarantee schemes uh, when they subrogate to uh, cover depositors in insolvency and the least cost test. The Commission proposal tries to tackle this uh, issue by aligning every um, deposit uh, in the creditor ranking and removing the extension of the super preference to uh, deposit guarantee schemes. This could potentially pave the way for a more proactive role of deposit guarantee schemes um, like in the US. The issue which I see um, in the proposal of the Commission is that uh, such a more proactive role of deposit guarantee schemes uh, is expected to take place in the context of resolution. Now, if resolution is managed at uh, European Union level, then national deposit guarantee schemes uh, will simply end up having to provide resources for the implementation of uh, strategies which are defined by others at European Union level. Um, this might not be the ideal outcome in terms of affecting governance arrangements. And again, maybe some thoughts should also be put in this uh, uh, respect. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you, thank you, Mongro. Um, okay, so maybe maybe linking your work to even more uh, to some of the recent events, right? So, so uh, in in your book, you pick up the um, the differentiation, which is very common um, in in this uh, in this setting. So the differentiation between um, um, the bank failure management of systemic and non-systemic banks. Right. So, um, but the recent events, especially the failure management of of the Silicon Valley Bank, um, where the U.S. authorities have have applied um, the systemic risk exception, um, these have fueled some discussions on on this very concept of of a bank being systemic. Right or as we can read in the FSB um, key attributes, they refer to banks that may be systemic in failure. 
Right. So, so what we're seeing is, is very early discussions about this concept of a bank being systemic, and, and um, these include things like, well, what is systemic, right? A bank can be systemic for, for a given region um, or for something like topics like financial inclusion or for the economy as a whole or uh, for certain industries uh, in, in a given economy. And also in Europe, if you look at the European Commission's proposal that you just mentioned uh, and, and the public interest um, test discussions in that, in that proposal, um, there are some changes that are being discussed. So I know it's, it's very early, right? Um, but, but still, um, do you have any thoughts on, on what this um, discussion on, on a bank being systemic um, could actually mean um, for future um, discussions and the future design um, of bank crisis management framework. So are we seeing something very basic, very fundamental being being put into question here? Um, that's that's a very interesting uh, point. And, you know, from a general perspective, I feel that every bank crisis could potentially have some systemic uh, repercussions uh, irrespective of the size of the bank concerned and, you know, the nature of the specific business model. Uh, the issue is that it's very difficult for the authorities to foresee in advance if that is the case or not. Um, the policy discussion in the EU that you mentioned, I think, is interesting as the idea which has been uh, uh, put forward by the Commission would now be to revert the original system upside down, which is from the consideration that public interest resolution was needed only for a few large and complex banks to the opposite consideration that now most banks should be uh, resolved in the event of being failing or uh, likely to fail. Now, this could be explained by simply, you know, uh, referring to the fact that harmonized bank, uh, harmonizing bank insolvency regimes is not feasible at this juncture, and therefore the only way to achieve some sort of harmonization would be to expand the scope of application of the uh, resolution regime, which is already uh, harmonized. This could sound like a sort of fictio iuris, uh, where you pretend that uh, um, the public interest, which was not there uh, mm. in the past, uh, will be there uh, in the future. Um, this, to me, is uh, somehow acceptable. What uh, might become a practical issue uh, will relate to the application of the 8% bail-in uh, uh, rule requirement in a resolution, which will need to be complied with in order to have access to external funding. So in the US, you have this uh, systemic risk exception, which was uh, applied by the FDIC to provide coverage to um, every uh, deposit. And considering the nervousness of the market and the number of regional banks potentially being affected, it's not so surprising that a decision of this sort was, uh, was made. But uh, I wonder, by contrast, if, if there were no other alternatives to, to consider in that, in that respect, such as a clear and explicit uh, full guarantee provided at the very beginning by the government for a limited period of time to every uh, depositor. This could have perhaps prevented the failure of those three banks and therefore saved resources of the deposit insurance fund. It would also have avoided some banks to get even bigger through the acquisition of assets and liabilities of the three failed banks. 
which the which which going forward uh, will become potentially an issue which should not be underestimated of course uh, such a strategy would also have created moral hazard but the strategy eventually implemented through the systemic risk exception has created moral hazard too and now every depositor in the US has the legitimate expectation to be fully protected anyway mm-hmm. okay well Thank you, thank you, uh, Marco. Maybe uh, a final question on on, um, on the other failing bank that we haven't discussed uh, so far um, in detail, so Credit Suisse. So, um, I mean, I realize that your book does not cover Swiss um, Swiss bank failure management uh, law, and uh, and of course we cannot, you know, discuss the details of this case in the absence of all the details and, and all the information. Um, but the thing that's special is that this was a failure of of, of a GSIP, like of, of a globally systemic uh, important bank. So the bank was by nature um, systemically important. And and yet the bank did not go into resolution as, as the key attributes um, would expect, but, but rather into something that we maybe can call like an assisted merger, right? So, uh, and also when, when you look at the other failing banks, um, uh, what many of those in their failure had in common was the very, very rapid and, and massive withdrawal of deposits in in a way that we probably have not seen um, in, in the past. Um, and some of this may be influenced by, by the quick spread of, of information, be it true or false information, uh, through social media. So so all this puts authorities under under great stress, authorities being bank resolution authorities, but also deposit insurers, of course, um, puts them in the great stress to find a solution in, in a very, very short time frame. Right. Um, I was wondering, if do you have any thoughts, uh, any thoughts on, on this constellation and on, on these challenges? Um, yes. So I think that the way in which Credit Suisse was handled by the Swiss uh, authorities was, uh, was surprising, not only to me, but to many people. Um, what is interesting, as you pointed, is that uh, even when bail-in should be the number one option, authorities are reluctant to, to apply it. And luckily, this happened in Switzerland and not in Italy, that was criticized in the past for deviating from the application of bail-in for banks which were way smaller than Credit Suisse. The second aspect, which was very interesting to me, Um, was the decision to write down 81 instruments without writing down shares first. Now, there might be several strategic uh, reasons why the authorities uh, uh, came to that decision, but I'm inclined to think that uh, 81 holders have good grounds to bring claims against that decision. I assume that the Swiss authorities were uh, well aware of that risk too, And uh, it could also be the case that they decide to go down that route because this could be somehow presented to Swiss citizens as a way to avoid a bailout strategy. Yet if a court decision will be made that the government will have to compensate 81 holders, then that will be a sort of postponed bailout. Still, from the political perspective, politicians will have the argument that this was not their decision, but rather a law court Uh, decision, which, you know, from the political perspective might be more acceptable. As to the rapidity at which deposits can nowadays move through, you know, online banking and other, you know, mobile applications, uh, of course, that could uh, accelerate and precipitate a crisis, making it very difficult for the authorities to intervene. 
frankly, it seems to me that the situation of Silicon Valley Bank and to a certain extent Signature was quite peculiar with an extremely large amount of uncovered deposits that would obviously have big incentives to move as the first symptoms of a crisis materialize. Um, yet if such a decision should occur again, perhaps uh, you know, some considerations about uh, limiting the amount of uncovered deposits that banks can take up could be, um, could be taken into account. Of course, the other way around would be to increase deposit coverage and to provide a special treatment to business accounts, which is what is actually under consideration in the U.S., As to supervision, uh, many people claim that the U.S. crisis were due not only to regulatory failures, but also to supervisory failures. Uh, that could certainly be the case. But what was very surprising to me was to read in the Bar report a clear recognition of their failure as supervisors. I'm not sure we would have seen the same should those crises have occurred in uh, Europe. Thank you very much, Marco. We heard Marco Bodolini an outstanding academic on bank resolution, talking about his new book, International Bank Crisis Management, The Transatlantic Perspective. Marco, thank you very much for your views today. And uh, thank you very much also to the listeners to this IADI podcast. All the best from Basel and stay tuned for the next podcast of IADI. Thank you and goodbye.